listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. So this idea, this question, what do I want to get from others? helps put us directly in touch with our clinging. It puts us in touch with where we feel we're lacking, where we feel there's uh, a void. And the fears uh, surrounding that void and its, uh, its expression usually lead us in very, very interesting directions. And ultimately, when we follow a path about where we lack, if we follow that path, uh, it tends to put us into a deeply threatened, deeply egoic, deeply craving place where we're always grasping. We're always seeking for some way out. It's very natural. This is what, this is what human beings do in most cases. And it's not that it's a crime. It's not that it's anything other than what is quite normal. But what deep spiritual work is about is questioning that normalcy, if you will. And instead of continually turning right, as Pema Chodron likes to say, we suddenly begin to turn left and there's an entirely different view. So you can think about that. Where do you feel incomplete? Where is it that you feel like you're lacking? Where is it that any of us feels like there is something missing that needs to be fulfilled? This immediately puts us in touch with seeking. And seeking is movement. It's not stillness. Here again, movement isn't a crime. But there's an awful lot that shows up at that... um, Hell, I'm just going to go with the metaphor. There's a lot that shows up at that crime scene when we're all about movement, when we're all about moving away from where we are. Spiritual work itself actually takes takes root and takes form from a feeling like something ain't quite right. Okay? So it's important to use that, use that fuel to get us into this situation. Seeking, without seeking, without seeking, we can never be put on this path. So we, we, owe, it, we owe it a debt of gratitude. But at the same time, what is very, very common among, uh, among practitioners is that they will spend all this time seeking to fill something that uh, uh, apparently is missing, and they will lose what it's like to not seek. They will forget, if you will, at some primal level, what it's like 
to just be. Being is different than seeking because seeking implies movement to go towards something that will bring peace. Being, on the other hand, is just the stillness of this very moment met with our total attention. And there is this utterly simplistic, utterly elegant feeling of being. It shows up like a, almost like a, a shimmer in just who and what we are in this moment that is continually glossed over in seekers who are running towards something. And I say that in terms of spiritual seekers or people who are looking for a new relationship or people who are looking for you know, something else to, 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 uh, to add to their resume or they're looking for something else to have. So when we get at what's underneath the seeking, when we get at what's, what feels in our hearts and minds as being unfulfilled, when we can really begin to look at that, we can then really begin to uncover what it means to actually be at peace. When we can see where we feel lack and we can get curious about that sense of lack, we can actually begin to take energy from it. Usually when we feel that sense of lack, there's sometimes it, it, it's, it's almost like it fuels an engine. Sometimes at one level it's panic, other levels it's just kind of a low-grade anxiety and everything in between where it's like, got to do something. And if we can actually not get seduced by that, what can happen is we can let that energetic pull, that desperation, if it's at a high, a high level, or that kind of low-grade low grade, uh, tease or seduction or flirtation, we can begin to see it for what it is and then not go there. We can become curious about what's unfolding. We can be curious about this sense of lack. That curiosity is what will lead us, will lead us onto a deepening path towards freedom. Freedom from that sense of lack. Freedom from anxiety, freedom from panic and all its hooks, traps and snares. We're free from it. And we're also free from the traps and snares brought on by bliss, brought on by ecstasy, brought on by all those things that tend to put us onto a seeking, uh, uh, into a seeking arena to begin with. I should say seeking space, onto a seeking space, into a seeking space. So we can play with this in our, in our meditation and in our day-to-day. -day. What is it that we want from others? I want him to drive better, damn it. 
got a kid in the back seat. That might be one of them. I want her to love me. I want him to love. I want to feel loved. All those things are fine. But ultimately, ultimately, that craving, that something you want from others, okay, is simply masking what's real within us. And what's real within us is a sense of something's not quite right. When we study that not quite rightness, when we study it with our full attention, it begins to lose its energetic pull. And we begin to uncover a freedom just in the observation of what's going on. We begin to become comfortable with discomfort. We begin not to have to get out. The compulsion to move, instead, there's this shift from that compulsion to move to a grace and ease with what is. fact of the matter is, most of us, when we, if we were asked the question, you know, what, what is it that you really want from the universe? We might say, I'd like, I'd like a new car. That would be really cool. I'd like a new relationship. I'd, I'd like, I'd like peace on earth. I'd like, it could be all sorts of things. It could be all sorts of things. However, I've said this before, what we really want is for that new car or that new relationship or the idea of peace on earth to reveal a peace within ourselves. And the fact of the matter is we don't need a new car. We don't need a new degree, you know, a couple letters after our name. We don't need a new job. We don't need anything to bring that to us. It might help if the relationship we're in is not centered on generosity, it might make sense to really explore it deeply. If the job that we're in is not generous for us and for everyone else, and there's, it's creating a tear within our consciousness, that might be something to look at. If our current way of living is bringing something other than grace and ease, then we might want to explore that as well. I'm not saying you have to change it. I'm saying that you got all you need to awaken. Every single Buddha, as my teacher used to say, every Buddha is practicing with you. Every Buddha, every awakened being has gone through this very thing that you're touching on right now, no matter how, what it might look like. An awakened being has gone through that type of of uh, pain, anxiety, craving. The visage that you see right here, this little Buddha statue, uh, one of the things that's so inspiring about, about the, uh, the Buddha's work, whoever he was or she was or whatever, was that as the legend goes, she or he was tempted by the onslaught of Mara. And Mara is, uh, for all intents and purposes, the devil. 
Okay? The devil came at Buddha. Oh, so you think you're the awakened one. Really? You know? Well, how about this? Boom. And throws all these uh, beautiful naked women at him. And he's like, got anything else? Boom. All this temptation and this and then this and then this. And the Buddha just sat there comfortable in the discomfort of it all. Uh, until finally, and you see these great statues with this, this particular view of the Buddha touching the ground as the earth is my witness, I will not move. Boom! That's the awakening. And so if we can use that mythology as an inspiration to our work, if we can take all that seduces us and get underneath why it seduces us, then guess what we're able to do? We're able to take whatever the universe throws at us in the form of temptation, which, by the way, Americans, were really good at that. You know, we have entire industries around this. We can take that temptation and we can say, ain't moving. Give me all you got, but I'm not moving. I'm going to be right here. I'm going to be right here studying this experience. I'm going to be right here intimate with my craving, intimate with my expectations, intimate with all of this so that I can meet this very moment with my complete and total awareness. And the more we do that, the more we start recognizing that there isn't anything that can really pull what's true in us into delusion. That's freedom. That's freedom. a lot of time for Q&A, okay, because I want to be able to converse, especially on these Saturdays. It's kind of nice to be able to kind of have the give and take of dialogue, especially when it's in relationship to something I've said, okay? So, bring it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is there a difference between the question what am I seeking from others? And what am I seeking from things? Only the, the dynamic relationship between self and other, it's, it's more dynamic, but that's it. A, a thing outside of our experience, whatever that might be, the piano or the, you know, whatever it might be, those are still uh, um, seen as externalities to an interior I or me, right? And so whenever we have an externality and the I or me is in here looking to desperately make sure it can defend itself against the onslaught of chaos, you know, of discomfort, it can defend against discomfort, what it does is it will take things just like it will take other people, okay? So the difference is relatively subtle. But the practice is the same. Practice is identical, all right? If we think a new car, for instance, will make us, will bring us peace or defend us against the onslaught of the chaotic universe, great. Similarly, if we think that a new relationship, whether it's a friendship or it's one that involves sexual intimacy, if we think that will bring us peace, 
yet we ourselves are still in this defended space. All we're doing is grooving more deeply down this path of delusion. Okay? Now, egos at this point will usually send up the flares and say, oh, great, so we got to be renunciates? No sex, no car, <laughs> no things, right? And it's actually not that at all. True spiritual work and, and integrated spiritual practitioners are not uh, cut off from the neck down. They're actually enlivened by both what's from above and below. And they integrate that in a way that is just not attached to things. Not attached to what's external, external, be it a relationship or an object. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. Cool. So now you're enlightened, right? Ta da! <laughs> yeah. So, what you're saying is there, if we look at certain things and see that they're not healthy or good for the universe or yourself, then you do need to change that. Mm hmm. Um, but are you saying that? It sh is as long as you don't um, think that it's going to create peace inside, then it's okay. Well, just when you think it, that's what it's going to do. Let's okay. use the example of like a job. Let's say you're in a job that you hate. You just you hate it. Mm -hmm. Or it's even one that's not that you hate. It's even worse. It's low grade, ugh. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the reasons for that, that resistance that come up in you are deeper than just, uh, I, I, I don't like my boss, but there's a deeper tear that's kind of occurring. Maybe it's subtle, maybe it's bigger. It just doesn't resonate with what you know to be true. Well, then it's very natural, and this is a healthy way of employing the seeking mind to pull us into a space of deeper creativity. Where can I maintain, in Buddhism we call it right livelihood, where can I look to maintain right livelihood? Where can I do something that not only is in accord with who and what I am at my, at my core, but also what the universe needs? So that instead of what can I get from my job, just like what can I get from this thing or this person, what can I give? That simple you know, that symbiosis of you get what you give applies in that type of a situation. Now, once we, we, we employ the seeking mind and we find something that resonates a little bit more deeply, that seems to be in accord with, with balance, peace, truth, and all that stuff, then once we engage in that with our full heart and mind, it's not really work. It's not really a job. You've heard the old cliche, if you love what you do, if you love your work, it's not really work. There's some depth there. All right? But, and I don't know if this is where you were, you were going, Sheila, but it, it's, it's imperative that we allow for seeking to occur, but that we don't cling to whatever it is that we, wherever the seeking takes us. That we don't indeed cling to the seeking itself. We don't cling to the journey. We don't cling to the destination. We don't cling. We don't grasp. And when we're not grasping, we can't 
be in a situation where we're avoiding. And if we're neither avoiding something or trying to get something, we are, in essence, what we call grounded. We're still, we are an expression of peace. Does that make sense? If we're still, even in our activity, if there's a sense of stillness in our activity, stillness shows up, it arises as a felt sense of peace, as a felt sense of joy, as a felt sense of completion. So we can consciously bring that into what it is that we do. And it's not about, I want this, I don't want that. It's not about, here's what I can get, here's what I can... It's, it's really all about giving, okay? And in the process, what we get from giving is something eternal, something really big. Changing jobs or changing relationships, I would think the motivation usually would be that it's going to feel better, right? Yeah. So this preconceived idea of this is going to make me feel better, if that's why you're getting the divorce, let's say, or that's why you're changing the jobs because it'll make me feel better, that may not be the most, uh, how shall I say, um, thoroughly it may not be the most sound reason to move, to shift, because it'll make me feel better. This work is not, as I've said a trillion times, about feeling better. It's about being more and more conscious of what's being felt. The more and more conscious we are of what's being felt, the more consciousness and awareness we can bring to our experience, the less need there is to feel comfortable. Because we become deeply comfortable with all states. We're plugged into awareness as opposed to I. The awareness of I is not bound by what I is always, always enmeshed in. So as a result, we, when we're in this spaciousness of awareness that meditation brings us, meditation, after all, is just witnessing whatever arises without trying to do anything to it. We're just right there. And the more we bring that awareness in, okay, the more the awareness of what is uncomfortable is equal to the awareness of what is blissful. Instead of being rocked back and forth by bliss and pain, bliss, pain, we are aware of both states and that awareness, since it's our, our new psychological and spiritual center of gravity, is okay with either. Any state is the perfect state for awakening to truth. And unfortunately, especially in the West, we've got this idea that uh, awakening or enlightenment is all about bliss all the time. It's not about the bliss. It's acceptance of what yes. is. Yes. Right. Now, you might be able to bring that into the job you're in. It's a job you don't really like, but you can bring the acceptance of the fact that you don't like the job into the job. At some point, and you could also do that with the relationship. At some point, however, there, there is a tipping, there's a scale that literally just kind of goes thunk, okay, now it's destructive. It's no, longer, it's no longer generous to 
the, what's true in me and in others, and changes need to be made. And that's not really an egoic shift. It's not about, I need more pleasure, I need more cash, I need... It's, it's deeper. It's deeper than that. It's, this isn't good for this person that I'm with. This isn't good for the clients that I'm serving. This isn't good for... And I'm included in that mix. This is not only not good for them, it's not good for me. And then we're answering to a higher calling, a deeper, a deeper truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please. Um, seems like it's really easy to get uh, caught in some pretty serious delusion um, with uh, what you just said about this isn't good for me. This isn't good for them. I could easily see how you could delude yourself into thinking that. Mm -hmm. When in fact, what's really behind that is ego just creating this delusion so you can go and get this. Right. Right. Right? So how, how can you be... I guess the question is... Um, how can you be aware How of... How can you be sure that yeah. you're not deluding yourself? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, 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 real, the real test, the, the thing that shows up continually as a, as a little you know, uh, litmus test is uncovering resistance. If you can uncover resistance in what it is that you're doing, what you're basically doing is you're, you're dancing an egoic dance. Ego shows up most readily for us as resistance. Mm -hmm. Clinging, a little harder to spot. But resistance, ooh, there it is. So if your choices, if, if, if the choices we end up making are choices that are about avoidance, okay, avoidance, then we probably should take some time to explore them. doesn't mean we shouldn't leave them or we shouldn't maintain them. As, as they are, but it, 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 becomes, it becomes a deeply subtle series of exercises. We get, we get very, very, very uh, familiar with the, the brilliant third grader called ego, which is what the ego really is. It's a, it's a brilliant third grader. And we begin to be able to go, hey, 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 it's okay. It's okay. All right. Let's take the relationship as an example. How do you know when it's ego just saying no, nah, and you know I don't want to do that. I want pleasure, or when it's actually the right thing to do. Well, the right thing to do is going to show up in non-resistance, and non-resist. Another way of saying non-resistance is generosity. So, is it generous? To the person, in other words, is it helping them awaken to truth, just like me? Is it helping us awaken? Is it helping me bring consciousness into my experience of life and share it and then share it with the world? 
Or is it something different? Most of us in this room, no matter how egoic we might be, get a really clear sense of when something vibes perfectly. You know? And it's not because it feels good. It's because, oh, 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 oh. It's deeper. It's deeper than feeling good. It's as if somebody just took, literally broke us at our sternum and went, and it's like the heart just then shines. It's, it's about surrender. Uh, years ago, there was a, a Q&A that we were talking about. And uh, I forget who asked the question, but they were sitting right to my right. And they said, well, is there like a, is there like a metaphor for this type of surrender you're talking about? And I hearkened back to one of the, I think, one of the great films of the early 90s. Um, and it was one of those one-shot wonders because the, the star writer and director of it, Kevin Costner, never really did anything beyond that. But it was in the film uh, Dances with Wolves when as a Civil War, Civil War guy, he was, he was toast. He was up against it. And, and so what did he do? He gets on with a broken leg onto his horse and rides into the bullets. didn't get shot. That's fiction. <laughs> but that impulse, that impulse of, you know, and this is where, this is where this, the, you know, the symbolism of the cross is so powerful, you know, utter and total exposure. Well, can we live like that? I hope so. That's what this is. Otherwise, we're defended. You know? And awakening is utterly undefended. It's the embodiment of what is undefended. A person who walks with awakened feet through the world is undefended. That's true if you're in a state of complete surrender and complete generosity and giving. You're ultimately vulnerable. Supremely vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But what is it that's vulnerable? I'll give you a hint. It's one letter, and it's between H and J. (laughs) Right? It's the I. The eye is vulnerable. And the eye spends so much energy throwing that somewhere else. I will not be vulnerable. Yeah. I, me, mine, everything, us. Yes. Um, I have come to understand that actually I'm safer being vulnerable. Right, and I would say that's really cool, but it's still partial as long as there's an I there that feels safer. Do you understand? Yeah, I do. It's, but it's a great first step. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. But being, being vulnerable, okay, when we then couple that vulnerability with generosity. Well, and yes, I mean, I've moved into that place, but that, that I came to understand I was not safe being defended. You were not safe being defended. Being defended. Right. Being defensive. I was hurting myself. Mm. And by doing that. And so 
so to open and be as open as possible and as, as generous as possible. That's neat. That's beautiful. And also, what it's, it's leading you down a path. And if you're interested in knowing where it's taking you, I'll, I'll be happy to share that. I mean, I know, are you interested? No I. The more vulnerable you are, the more you recognize that the I is a construct to keep you safe. And we begin to trust the fact that we're safe, despite the chaos despite the financial ruin, despite the divorce, despite the whatever it is, despite the death, despite the, the illness, just whatever, we begin to trust that it's okay. There's no need to struggle anymore. And the minute that happens, the I, we see it for what it is. It is an actor. It is an actor on the stage. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's where the road leads. Very few have the courage to go any further. Most people just want to feel, hey, I'm, I'm undefended and I feel safer now. Next, you know, right? It, right it's good for me. <laughs> You're right. But what happens then is this, is this, if there is this willingness and this discipline and this so forth, that we have this beautiful chance to go down a road that is fundamentally not a road at all. It takes us simultaneously. At some point, there's this, there's this tip where it goes. It's not only a road, a path that we follow, but the path goes out, and then it goes in, and then it morphs again to go out, in, and in every direction, and then we become expansive. And in that expanse, there's a groundedness. We call it groundedness because there's nothing nothing holding us. We are no longer bound. We're no longer bound by... One of the great, great things, uh, I, was, I was talking to my daughter about the sunrise. We go out with the dog each morning and uh, you take the dog, she goes and does her uh, business and then she comes, she comes running back and she grabs the paper. And this la last week or so has been really neat because I can look at the uh, sunrise with Cade and I go, look at that sunrise. And she goes, wow! You know, that's pretty much what she says to everything. Wow, sunrise. And I don't have the heart to tell her that there's no such thing really as a sunrise. Ultimately, the sun doesn't rise. It's a perspective that we cling to. That the sun comes up over Mount Diablo and then will set out towards the Golden Gate, right? You recognize that it's not that, it, that's not real. It's just, you, it's just from where we're standing. And yet, how beautiful, right? And so when we have this new perspective of openness that does not center around an eye, we can see the beauty of a sunset and yet know that it's not really setting at all. We can see the beauty of a sunrise and know that it's not rising really at all. We begin to integrate the expansive knowing of what is with the limited constraints of day-to-day -day living. Yeah. Are you ready? <laughs> ready to do this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
in Buddhism or, or other religions between a legitimate versus a moral, um, now I've lost the word. I was taking a class and I was told that because in Buddhism it says, or other religions, thou shalt not kill, and mm -hmm. that includes animals and bugs and things, that where you one could be a hunter or a fisherman and provide food for their families or other people, and that would be a legitimate career mm -hmm. choice, but that would not be a moral choice. And I, I have a little difficulty with that. Sure. You could say that about lawyers, yeah. for example. Yeah. So, we try to go easy on lawyers in this group because we got a lot of them, but uh, yeah, they're really they're soft targets. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I know where you're going with this, but I want to I want to make sure I can I can be clear on the on the um, on the question. The question is, from this the te the perspective of this teaching, could you still be going on a fishing trip? Exactly. Yeah. Sure, you could. However, uh, the the most, <laughs> if you look at all the wisdom traditions and you, you really scrape away at all the, you know, the, the stuff that's been put on the surface of it to make it a religion and you get into the, the essence of the wisdom itself, basically all of them point into this one really cool area, which is the, the, the one precept, you know, the one commandment, the one, whatever you want to call it, uh, is do not use your personal power to inflict harm on others. Do not use your personal power, knowingly or unknowingly, to inflict harm. So don't do harm, right? Um, if I were in a situation where, or you were in a situation where you had to provide for your family, okay? Would you kill? Would you inflict harm? Would you use your power to harm in order to protect what's sacred? I think you could make a case for that. If you were in a situation, I love this one, if you were in a situation where you, were, uh, you had access to Pol Pot or to Hitler or to you know, some of the, you know, the great nefarious uh, 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 clingers in human history, would you have taken them out? These are great questions that always get, you know, that, uh, uh, that intellectually uh, really start to rattle a lot of what the precepts, what the commandments are talking about. There is a certain relative truth that we try to bolster up against this ultimate truth, and it gets awkward in all situations. Here's what we have to do. In every moment, we have to decide what is the most generous thing for all concerned. Okay? Now, if you are in a situation to take out Hitler, is the most generous thing for you not to harm Hitler? Or is it to take him out with absolutely no clinging in your heart or mind? Well, that, that's a pretty interesting decision. Yeah, it is. And who knows what it would be like in the moment. But when we carry the presence of this, the, you know, where, where this teaching is taking us, it's that you carry the presence, the awareness of what is into 
into your life, decision, decisions are going to have to be made. Now, I, t I, took, I took vows not, not to use my power to harm. But you know what? I'm going to get that H1N1 vaccination to keep that little, you know, mm -hmm. bug from growing in you. Exactly. So what happens? Am I harming that bug? Yes. I'll do it again, too. Does that diminish the embodiment of being? So we have these rules, okay, in order to keep people on, on track. Because you could go in the other direction, which is, hey, man, it's all universe. It's all there are no rules. It's all good. Who cares? And that actually was something that was said. I bastardized the quote, but it was said by Charles Manson. Okay? It's, what, it's what the kamikaze pilots, who initially were Buddhist monks. Bet you didn't know that one. Yes, I did. You did, okay. Yeah, sorry, excuse me. Okay. Of course you did. <clears throat> you know, they were the ones who were flying into, into aircraft carriers. Why? Because it's all God. It's all spirit, which is just like, praise be to Allah. Well, but, yeah, that is, it's uh, like... I actually hadn't realized, I always thought of Buddhists as being very pacifistic, but then there's that book, um, Zen, Zen and War, mm -hmm. Black Zen or something, yeah, yeah. and they really sort of twisted the teachings to convince warriors that they were, uh, you know, the enemy was not really real. Exactly. And so when, when we do that to the teaching, we've created a form of fundamentalism, but it's a really unique form because it's creating an attachment to non-attachment, and there is nothing more dangerous. There's nothing more dangerous than that. Similarly, if you do the same, if you attach to non-attachment, you'll become a spiritual couch potato, ready to do anything, because rules don't apply. Right? Well, actually, that's an unintegrated awakening experience that's turned into an ego that thinks it's Buddha. And so our work, the reason why Sangha is so important, the reason why the teaching is so important and the teacher is so important is what that does is it kind of keeps us righted as we sail. You know, we tend to, we then have people to bounce off of and it tends to socialize. It socializes the experience. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.